That's what is it, those final words of the, the letter. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. We don't normally read that much, but I think it's good for us to hear the whole of this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. There's a box somewhere in our house that holds some special items, some keepsakes, memories uh, that are, are precious to me. Uh, and in that box, there are, are photos and, and letters, uh, but there are also some tickets, tickets of events that I've been to in, in the course of my life. And they are little bits of evidence, proof, if you like, that I was there that I was there in 2019 at the Ashes Test match when Ben Stokes hit that ridiculous century to beat the Aussies. The fact that I was there on day two when England got bowled out 58 is, you know, neither, near, neither here nor there. There's a ticket in there that says that I was at Wembley to see the Foo Fighters play in front of 90,000 people and to see one of the, the bands play a two-minute triangle solo to 90,000 people there with just a little triangle for two minutes. Amazing. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we know. That we know that we belong. That we have certainty that we are part of something or someone. Knowing, certainty, assurance. That's the theme of our, our sermon today, because it's the theme of these three verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Let me read them again to you. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen, <coughs> excuse me, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. We've just heard the whole of this letter read to us. And certainly this first section. These first opening, uh, this opening chapter of the letter. Seems to be Paul pouring out his heart to assure, to convince, to joyfully express the certainty that these people, these men and women in this place called Thessalonica, that they belong, that they belong to Jesus, that they belong to the, the true church, that their faith is real. And he's writing about their faith that, so that he can delight in it, so that he can comment on it, so that he can record it, and ultimately so that he can strengthen their faith. And so he says, verse 4, he being Paul and Silas and Timothy, we know. If you've been around church for any length of time, you will probably come, of, come across this question, how can I know? How can I know that I'm really part of the church? How, how can I know that I'm really a Christian? There are all sorts of books and blog posts written about this question of assurance. How can I know? But what's modelled here for us in the opening to this letter to, to the church in Thessalonica is this. 
It's the assurance that somebody else gives us. The role that we have in one another's lives to affirm the love of God for us. And Paul and Timothy and Silas write to the church and say, we know, we are certain. But what are they certain of? We've got three points today. The first one is this, the big picture. We know, brothers and sisters, Dave and Steve and Stephanie and Davina, we know that you are loved by God and chosen by God. This is not a general love in the way that a teacher might say, I love my class. And you know full well that they don't love all of them and they don't love all of them in the same way. Because there's that one kid who always, anyway, we won't get into that. This is not a a passive love. This sort of, oh, send Edna my love, which is pretty meaningless most of the time. If that message even gets passed on, what does it mean? I'm, I'm generally sort of thinking about them. No, this is a special and a specific love. This is the sort of love that somebody expresses when they say, I love you, will you marry me? It is a choosing love, an identifying and specific, I love you. And I am acting upon that love and I'm requesting that that we delve deeper into it. Now that language of choosing, we know that God has chosen you, has a whole history in the church of, of controversy. What does that mean? What does it not mean? Questions like this. Does God choose those who turn to him? Do those who turn to God only do so because God has chosen them? Who's responsible for people turning and becoming Christians? Is it them or is it God? Questions about election, free will, human responsibility. And if all that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. But here Paul writes to them says, we have a certainty that God has chosen you. And we know that Paul, as he writes this letter to the church, is writing with a a background of the entire Bible. And when he brings together these two terms, chosen and loved, I think we can be fairly confident that Paul's thinking back into the history of God's dealing with people. And that we have that history, some of that history, written out for us in the first part of the Bible in the Old Testament. Listen to this. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt know therefore that your Lord that the Lord your God is God he is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments You can find that in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 7. 
This is God speaking through Moses, the leader of the people, the people that he has saved and rescued. And he says, you need to know that God chose you. They didn't choose God. In fact, all of the evidence suggests that they wanted nothing to do with God. Because even when God turns up and even when God does miraculous and wonderful things for them, they are miserable and grumpy and ungrateful. But God shows them. And he takes them out and he makes them into a people. And what Moses tells the people then, and the echo that Paul is echoing here in, in 1 Thessalonians is this. God chooses because he loves Salvation starts with God. That's the headline. Salvation starts with God. And yes, people must choose God too. People must choose to repent. The biblical word there of turning from their wrongdoing, their rejection of God, their natural state of, I don't want God. They must turn to him. And she must choose to put their trust in The Lord Jesus. And the Bible holds both of these things up. Both that God acts first. And God is the one who saves. But also that people must respond. And it doesn't play them off against each other. It says simply. God starts salvation. And people must respond. But it is God that chooses Firstly and foremostly. And so as Paul thinks about this church and in his excitement about hearing about how well they're doing despite the opposition, he writes to tell them to give them certainty that God has chosen them and that God does love them. And so he starts with God. God has chosen you. And he'll get to their response. But the key thing for us here this afternoon is if we know ourselves at all, if we're followers of Jesus, we know that our faith is up and down. Sometimes, we might never say strong, sometimes mediocre and sometimes weak. We know that if we had to choose to follow God every day, there'd be some days where we would not choose to follow God. We would say, it's hard. Or, I don't think God has got the best for me. Or, I don't think that the best thing for my day today is to to follow and to choose God. There would be days where we just wouldn't. But Paul starts with God's choosing of people because... God is a faithful God, in the words of Deuteronomy 7, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and his commandments. God is not like us. When God chooses, he never changes. He chooses forever his people. And Paul wants to remind them and remind us of that great and wonderful fact for our encouragement and for our strengthening. But here's the thing in this big picture of God's choosing. How does Paul know? Has God sent Paul a a secret list? 
He's got a little email on his phone that says, these are the people that I've chosen. No. Well, Paul says, I know that God has chosen you and that God loves you because, because the word of God, the gospel was preached. And your hearts were changed and your heart change was then shown externally. There was internal change and then external evidence. Because when God chooses, we don't know who God has chosen. God doesn't give us a list of people in Rotherham and say, REC, here is your list of X amount of people. You need to go out and find them because they are the ones that God has chosen. Well, no, we know the ones that God has chosen because they respond to the gospel message. And there are signs as to about who God has chosen. And so we want a second point, draw into the nearer picture. If this is the great big picture of God's choosing people, the nearer picture, well, see where Paul goes next. We know, verse 5, because, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. This is the the nearer picture. How did they know? Three Ps. Proclamation, power, and proof. Proclamation. Paul says, our gospel came in words. Let's dip back into the book of Acts. And hear the story of how this church got started. Ian pointed us there a couple of weeks ago when he began our series. We'll just read a few verses again in Acts chapter 17. You can read the the Genesis, the starting story of this church. Let me read to you. When he gets to Thessalonica, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Our gospel. Acts 17 tells us that the in its simplest form was this. That the Messiah, God's promised king, had to suffer and then had to rise from the dead. And that Jesus was that Messiah. This man from Nazareth, this Israelite, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth of all places, he is God's chosen king who had to suffer had to die and had to rise from the dead. This is the message. This is the gospel. A gospel that is foretold in the scriptures, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. A gospel that is logical and provable. Paul can walk through the steps. This is what God has said. This is what God promised. This is what God foretold. This is how God works. A gospel that is simple and profound. Some of you may have watched uh, the programme back in the day, The Vicar of Dibley. 
There's a famous episode where Geraldine, the key character, the, the vicar of the village, is jumping in puddles. And she's splashed. Some of you are smirking already, okay? And she's splashing along in her wellies, just jumping in the puddles. puddles. She's so happy. And she goes to jump in the next one, and she just disappears. And it turns out that the, the, last, the latest puddle is actually some great crevice, and she's just completely submerged. And it's very funny. But that's kind of what the gospel is like. It looks so simple. This good news, that's what gospel means, about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it's about his, his death, his burial and his resurrection according to the, the scriptures. But when you jump in, we find that it is so much deeper. There's so much more going on, so much that this good news about this man, Jesus, who is a king, affects every person and everybody across all time and history. It's the greatest and most important news there has ever been. Or to use another uh, illustration, the gospel is like Doctor Who's police box. It's small on the outside, but it's much bigger on the inside. So it is with the gospel. Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried and raised to life again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is what had to happen. The depth beneath each one of those events. As we dig into them. It's like digging in a mine. The more we dig, the more we find. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the answer as we dig in is because of sin. But the answer is also he had to die out of love. And he had to die not for himself, but for other people. And he had to die to fulfill his calling, the mission given to him by God the Father. And he had to die at the hands of mankind for mankind. Why was Jesus raised to life? Well, because he did not deserve to die. And he had to be raised to life so that others might live. And he had to be raised to life so that the power of sin and death and hell might be defeated. That there might be a final victory in a world full of defeat. And he had to be raised to life again for the everlasting praise and glory of the eternal God. And the more we dig into our Bibles, the richer and grander and deeper we find this gospel to be. And this is the message that, that Paul shared with, the church, with, the, with these people in Thessalonica on those three Sabbath days, these three Saturdays. And presumably some other time as well. The Bible evidence is pretty clear that Paul can't really shut up. This is the message that needs to be at the heart of us as a church. The truth about Jesus has to be the source of our praise and worship. The truth about Jesus is the, the secret of our contentment in a world which would cause us to be discontented all of the time. The truth about Jesus is the solace for our heartaches in this life and in this world, of which there are many. And the truth about Jesus is the single greatest need 
for all the people that God has placed in our lives and all the people whom, whom God has placed us in their lives. Our families, our friends, our colleagues, our, our town, our country, our worlds. Because people without Christ are without hope in this world. This is the, the proclamation. But that proclamation, did you hear what Paul said? Did not come simply with words. It's not a matter of saying the magic words, getting the message right. But Paul's confidence in their salvation, in God's calling and love for them, is that the message came with power. Not simply in words. And we know that, don't we? Many more people have heard the gospel than have believed the gospel. It's just basic maths. We know it to be true. Simply sitting in church and hearing this message about Jesus does not save you. The gospel must be believed to be effective. So how can Paul be so confident that these women and these men are chosen and loved by God? Well, he's confident that the message was right. But then he's also confident that when it came, it was marked with power and the work of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And these words can describe how those who sharing the message, what was on them and in them, that they had this deep conviction and they were speaking the gospel with power and the Holy Spirit was at work in them. But it also means that it was all those three things are true of those who were receiving the message. And as he says these three separate things, they are indivisible. It's all of them together. It's not that you can get two out of three. So the message, the proclamation, the gospel came with power. Two weeks ago, Ian reminded us or told us that this word power is, is the similar word to the word that we have for dynamite. Bang! There you go. Woke you up a little bit. That's a trick of a long preacher. Not sure how it's going to come across on the internet. That's fine. But that's what the word means. The gospel came with, with a bang. Dynamite. And we know that's true. We know it's true as we open up the pages of the Bible and see what happens when people meet with Jesus. And when people believe in Jesus, their lives are transformed. We see slaves who become free. We see enemies becoming friends. We see outcasts are welcomed in. We see people who are irreligious become worshippers of God. We see Jews who reject Jesus find that Jesus is their Messiah, the promised king that they've been looking for. We see people who have been enemies all their life brought together, Jews and Gentiles. We see those who seemingly have everything in this life. Maybe even like these women who are married to prominent men in the city of Thessalonica saying, I can put all that aside and I can follow Jesus. 
But we also know that this power that Paul is describing as the gospel comes might be this big outward explosion that everybody can see, but it, sometimes it's something much, it's a little bit like, you ever seen a demolition? And they, they lay the charges, and then somebody presses the button, and it's almost anticlimactic. If you're far enough away, you don't even hear anything, just a little pop. And there's no fire, and there's no light, there's just a pop. As the building falls. And it's, it's, it's almost silent. Sometimes when that, the message of the gospel comes, there's an inward explosion. That condemned building falling down. And inside the walls are coming down. The ceilings are collapsing. And the landscape is changing forever. And Paul says, when the gospel came to you, the Holy Spirit was at work with power. The Holy Spirit God himself taking residence in their hearts, beginning a great work of change, of making holy. Or the Bible will call, and, and Paul will come back to in this letter, sanctifying. They believed the message, and God began to powerfully work in them. And Paul believed the message. This great conviction as he was sharing it. He was sharing it as somebody who had experienced God's power. And God's Holy Spirit turning, turning his life completely around. This phrase, this great conviction or deep conviction. He's talking about, the, the, the word conviction there is on about, again, certainty. Utter Certainty. The Bible gives us examples of this where people hear the message. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. And a crowd is hearing Peter preach about Jesus. And we're told the, that the crowd were cut to the heart. It's like somebody had reached into their chest and squeezed. And everything in them just tenses up and just knows the reality of this moment and the reality of this truth. It's a little bit like when you go on holiday to a foreign country and because you're, you're from Yorkshire, you're a bit of a cheapskate, you're trying to take as much as you can with you as possible. So you're wearing six layers because then you don't have to put those things in your suitcase. But you're going to somewhere hot and you step off the, you know, out the, the, the door of the plane and that wall of heat, heat hits you. And there's utter certainty about the truth of the message deep conviction certainty that when Jesus died it's not just that he did die and it's not just that Jesus when he died he died for sinners it's that Jesus died for me and Paul describes the effect, the impact of the gospel. He's describing that. That utter certainty that the truth of the gospel is true about me. Jesus died for me. And the utter certainty that Jesus did rise again on the third day. And it wasn't figurative and it wasn't metaphorical but that he physically 
rose to new life. And the utter certainty that means there is certain hope that there is life after death. And there is life for me through his death. Utter certainty. That's what happens when the gospel comes to those that God has called. And all of that can be inwards and unseen by anybody else. But when God calls and when the gospel comes with power and a heart is changed and the Holy Spirit is at work, there will be proof. Because that inward change will lead to outward action. And so Paul says, verse 5 and 6, You know how we lived among you. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. He says, we talked about our certainty, but you have a certainty of your own. You were there. When we came into your town, into your city, and you saw our lives and you knew our circumstances. You knew we'd just been chased out of Philippi. You knew that we were responding to the call of God. That we had left our homes and our lives and our comfort for the sake of sharing about Jesus. You saw our joy amidst our suffering. And he said, and now we see that you have become like us. Sharing in the joy of God in the work of Jesus, even when circumstances are hard. This is the evidence, the proof that the message of the gospel has been believed. Joyful, Holy Spirit, delight in God and his gospel. Even when Paul has to leave so quickly. Even when other circumstances will come along. Maybe those prominent women, you know, when their husbands began to go, what are you doing? Do you not know what people will think of us? Or maybe when their neighbours begin to go, we don't want anything to do with you. Oh, you believe that. That must mean that you think poorly of us, that you think you're better than us. They welcomed the message even amongst all that with joy. The joy given by the Holy Spirit. I refer you back to our series on the fruit of the Spirit from the summer. This is power. This is evidence that something supernatural has taken place. A message that has been believed and has been accepted and now insulates people not from suffering but in suffering and Paul has seen this and he's heard about this he's heard Timothy come back to him with this great report and he wants to assure them that they are God's chosen people and there is evidence for it okay so what does that mean for us well, let's finally look at the present picture. Just a couple of points. We talked about how assurance is often an inward thing, a struggle, a personal struggle. How do I know that I am saved? 
or being part of God's church means that we take responsibility for one another to affirm one another's faith. This is the, if you like, the key point of our membership here at REC. We have a formal membership here at the church where we covenant together. We make promises to one another. And the aim of it is to affirm each other's faith. We promise to pray for each other and to love one another. And as we welcome each other to the the Lord's table to communion, we commend one another's faith and we say to one another, yes, Jesus has called you. We have heard your testimony, how you have turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus. And we see your life and we say, yes, you belong to Jesus. And it also means that when we fail and stumble, and if there is sin in our lives, we have a group of people who will turn to us and say, we love you, but how you're living right now does not give us confidence that you belong to Jesus because you are walking away from him. Stop going that way. Come back to Jesus. So we want to affirm each other's belonging, even as the Apostle Paul does here to this church. We're not apostles, but we are Christians and we are, can see the evidences. And we can point each other to the great and wonderful truth that God calls people, not because they're impressive, not because they are in any way earning, uh, uh, deserving, not in any way have they earned it. But God has set his love upon them. So you could write a letter to the whole church and then you could get Barry to read it out to you, everybody. And say, we have seen your faith. But you could just quietly, when you see the evidence of faith in God's people, you could quietly just say, I'm so glad that God is at work in your life. I'm so glad to see this evidence of salvation at work. So when you see those people who are struggling and doubting, to be able to point them to the truth of the gospel. Those who, those who are inwardly doubting. And because of the, the illness of the mind or illness of the body. Are questioning. Does God really love me? Maybe God's bringing some of those people to, to mind even now. Sometimes we can't see the truth for ourselves. Maybe we could go to others and say... God loves you. God loves you. But the second thing in this present picture, in response, as Paul writes this affirmation of of the faith of believers, the second thing we need to just say is this. We need to ask the question of ourselves, Is this true of me? What is your confidence? What is the basis of your confidence that you are a Christian? Is it this? That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to you with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction? Does your heart echo with the words of the hymns that we've chosen? To say, I am his. I belong to him and he is mine. 
Because if your confidence is not in the Lord Jesus, if it's in coming to church, if it's in belonging to a certain family, if it's in even being born in a certain country, if it's, if it's any of those things, then this opening to the letter should, should really cause us to say, am I? Do I really belong? And you might love this church, and you might love the people, and you might love the, the lifestyle, the loving, kind, kind, warm embrace of this church, but, but if the word of God about Jesus Christ, about his death and his resurrection, about the certainty of those events and the fact that they were for sinners, for those that God is calling, if you have not heard and felt the impact of that in your own heart, then you are not yet a Christian. But it's not too late. You see, God does not talk, uh, Paul does not talk about God's choosing as though he knows ultimately all the people who are chosen and those who are not. We don't know. We can see the evidence of those who God has called and chosen and loved but we do not know i do not know who god is still yet to call so even today you can turn and trust in jesus even as you've heard the words about this great gospel even if you've been intrigued about the depth of it, about an event that took place 2,000 years ago can be so utterly life-changing here in Rotherham in the 21st century. Even now, you can ask God for faith to believe in Jesus. And you can be saved. And you can look and know that you are chosen and loved.